Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the L.A. Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. Previously on Silenced. Joseph said that he was to be paid $5,000 to watch the driving school for Fritz Door when he leaves work. They can kill us, any one of us, at any time. Couldn't believe it. I couldn't, he was at the center almost every day. So full of life. I couldn't believe that he died. Words started to circulate. That it was, it was more than just a, a, had to be so blunt, but typical homicide. It was, you know, a political motivated. And we got to put a stop to it, because who knows who's next. From Kaleidoscope and iHeart Podcasts, this is Silenced. I'm Oz Velocian. And I'm Anna Arana. This is Episode 3, Cocaine Kernels. I basically grew up in Miami. I came at very early age and are always involved with the Haitian community. In the early 1980s, Abel Zafir was living in Little Haiti in a small duplex with a few quiet neighbors. He was one of the first in a wave of Haitian refugees that began to arrive in Miami by boat in the decade before. And he was a key member of VAO, the pro-democracy organization. He worked side by side with Fritz Dorr. Not only with friends, with we come out, we work together, joke, march together, everywhere we, we're together. Abel's day job was for the city of Miami. He spent most days at a local immigration detention center where Haitian refugees were often held after they arrived by boat. Abel translated for recent arrivals there. He'd get on the radio with Marlene Bastien, 
and read the names in the hopes that a listener would recognize them. One afternoon, a neighbor knocked on his door. Abel knew the man from VAO. He was also a member. He said, I have a problem. He said, my wife sent both of my children to Miami and I don't know where they are. This neighbor had heard that two boats of Haitian refugees had recently left the Bahamas for Miami. One was intercepted by the Coast Guard and passengers had jumped overboard to try to escape. And there were a couple of people died like that. The neighbor was terrified that his children were among the dead. So Abel drove down to Chrome Detention Center, hoping to find them. There were a lot of people there. And then I was watching and I see a happy young girl who played with another young woman. And they were laughing. She's one of those kids come from Bahamas. And I asked her, what is your name? And she said, me mother. I said, where is your boy? They say, he's over there. And that's the way I met them. And I took the information. And when I get home, and I say, I fire your daughter and son. Abel filed all the paperwork for his neighbor and the family was reunited. I used to see the kid all the time. I live in the back and they live on the front. He heard over the years that the young girl was settling well into Miami. And he'd ask about her younger brother. He remembered the boy in part because he had an unusual name. He got a funny name, Hitler. Hitler. His father later said that he didn't know the meaning of the name when he gave it to his son. Abel heard that the boy had fallen in with the wrong crowd. It was a problem that a lot of Haitian-American parents were worried about because there was a flood of cocaine moving through little Haiti. The one thing the Haitians had, they controlled the dopes for a period of time because it was coming out of Haiti. Senior officer Irvins Ford, who's Haitian-American himself, told us the drug trade became a source of power for refugee kids. So the Vonda gang who ran a good percentage, the booby boys who ran the north side of the city, they all had to be respectful towards the Haitians because that's where the dope were coming from. Cocaine isn't cultivated or processed in Haiti, but under the Duvalier dictatorship, Haiti became an important stopover for the drug trade. The dictatorship collapsed in 1986 when Baby Doc was forced into exile. The military stepped into the power vacuum. The generals and the colonels, they made their money off of narcotics, of their contacts with Colombia. The amount of cocaine being trafficked through Haiti exploded. And the military officers who were now running the island figure out how to turn power into profit. I recall traveling to Haiti. There was this little small town in the northwest part of Haiti. You walk around, there was Colombians everywhere. It was a pit stop. And then you started having these boats, these raggedy little boats that uh, started being used for shipment. And it affected the South Florida area because this was the next stop. The military figured out that they could disguise shipments of cocaine in and amongst the refugee boats. With all that money to be made, military officers were competing for control. And for the next couple of years, there were literally hostile takeovers by the military every other month. That violence in Haiti rippled back across the water into the streets of Little Haiti because the military officers who lost out often ended up in Miami. So according to Irvins, 
gangs led by former military guys started monitoring the drugs as they reached Little Haiti's stash houses. And then they went in and stole the dope. We would get a lot of home invasion. What they would do, they break in. They suspect that this was a stash house. There were hundreds of kilos in a closet somewhere. But they couldn't always find what they were looking for. And that's when the Miami police started seeing horrible violence, torture techniques that the Haitian military had used. And they were now showing up on the streets of Miami. Irvins remembers one technique. If you didn't tell them where the dope was, they would find the youngest person in the house. Maybe four or five years old, they would find a child, tie up the child, plug the iron, and start burning them with the iron for their family to tell them where the dope was. Haitian kids who were struggling to find their place became the soldiers in the war among rival traffickers. And these Haitian kids were easily recruited because the majority of the Haitians coming in was holding on to two, three jobs just to send money back home. So these kids were raising themselves. So... It's not an excuse or a, a justification, but they were easily recruited by these guys. We'll look out for you, we'll care for you, we'll make sure you're good. Everybody looking for that hierarchy of needs. I want to linger on this for a moment, because I know from my reporting that gangs can be very effective at separating kids from their parents. These young people find themselves in a new country, often without a lot of guidance. Irvin Ford himself came to the U.S. as a child and remembers what it was like. I was chastised for being Haitian. I was not accepted. Uh, the kids attacked us. African-American kids, they were told, these Haitians are here to take your jobs. And they were very adamantly opposed to us being there. As the ACE crisis raged, Haitians were singled out as a public health risk. I recall being a, a young child going to Winn-Dixie on 54th and 2nd Avenue. My parents, being Haitian, they sprayed them at the door. I watched this as an 11-year-old. My parents were literally sprayed before they were allowed in the store. So, Anna, we've been looking at these crimes through the lens of a straight battle between the radio broadcasters and the military. But now Irvin's introduced this new consideration, the drug trade which was evidently drawing Haitian immigrant kids into the world of organized crime. I think it's important to talk about what so many Haitian kids were experiencing, because many of the VAO broadcasters had children themselves, and gang recruitment became part of their campaign. Say more about that. Well, gangs were recruiting the young Haitians to help move drugs, and then sending some of the proceeds back to Haiti to fund the military regime there. In other words... The cocaine trade was directly funding the violence and oppressive regime in Haiti. And Veo was fighting against that. This phenomenon was not obvious to anyone outside of the Haitian community. But Fritz and some of the other Veo broadcasters got it, and they spoke about it. And so thinking back to Glossy Bruce Joseph, uh, the guy who confessed to being involved with Fritz's murder supposedly over nine kilos of cocaine that Fritz had stolen. I mean, that story just feels so weird now. Right. Remember, Glossy first said he was a paid lookout when Fritz was shot. And then he recounted his confession. He was locked up for his involvement. But ultimately, years later, Glossy was clear of the crime. 
We don't know why Glossie Bruce gave this false confession, but what we do know is what you've been saying since day one, which is the police were under pressure, enormous pressure, to solve these crimes and find a motive that didn't relate to politics in Haiti. So it seems like Glossie Bruce became a very convenient scapegoat. Until a year later... The police received a tip from another young Haitian-American, 16-year-old Ashley Sevier, who was in jail on charges of manslaughter and armed robbery of a drug stash house that led to a man getting killed. Ashley told police that he wanted to do the right thing. And he also knew that talking could get his charges on that crime reduced. So he started trading information. He confessed to stealing the car used in Fritz Dorr's murder. And he started giving up names, the names of other young Haitians involved in gangs and drugs, and said they were also involved in killing both Fritz and Jean-Claude. One of them had a funny name, Hitler. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. Just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, My name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All 
these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Nothing could prepare Abel Safir for the shock of learning the name of one of the young men accused of assassinating his dear friend Fritz. Hitler, when we hear the news, and I say, Georges, this, this boy, his father was with us. We, we didn't anticipate somebody that close to us will kill a one of us. The news devastated the members of the pro-democracy group in Miami, Vallejo, especially Hitler's father. He had been totally unaware that his own son was involved. Abel told us they had cried together over Fritz's death. This was a shock. That, that is a big mess. How could you solve? I studied with him. We eat together. We work together. The criminal, the father is my neighbor. Come to me crying. My kid is in jail. I'm going to live with it for the rest of my life. For the Miami PD, the focus became building a case against Hitler and the rest of the group that Ashley Severe had named. Ashley told the police that 19-year-old Hitler Florinord was the getaway driver. And next to him, in the front seat, with the gun, was a 21-year-old named Billy Alexander, the trigger man. The whole focus is to get to the top, whoever is the leader. All we were trying to do is to get back to Billy Alexander. That's Raymond Carville, a member of the Miami PD task force investigating Jean-Claude and Fritz's murders. To catch Billy Alexander, Carville said, the police developed a plan of attack. Get Hitler to flip, to implicate Billy in exchange for a lighter sentence. But Carville says Hitler was a tough nut to crack. Hitler was basically Billy right-hand man. When you do right-hand man to Billy, you're not going to just start singing like Canary. For a long time, Hitler kept his mouth shut. It could have been out of loyalty or fear, but Hitler was facing a potential death penalty. Ultimately, he flipped on Billy. He testified that on two occasions, he'd been in the driver's seat when Billy rolled down the window, picked up his revolver and pulled the trigger, firing the shots that killed both Jean-Claude Olivier and Fritz Dorr. Billy Alexander was convicted of both murders and is imprisoned to this day, but he never admitted guilt. In fact, he still maintains he had nothing to do with these murders. So we reached out to him at South Bay Correctional Facility, hoping he would be willing to talk to us. He declined an interview, but he did write back. 
he wrote, My heart goes out to the surviving family members of the people who were murdered. My family has also endured more than their share of suffering and humiliation as a result of the publicity surrounding those high-profile cases. I do not want to relive the traumatic ordeal again, but God knows my desire for true justice to prevail. Anna, I was a little surprised that 30 years after the fact, Billy would still assert his innocence so strongly. Well, we don't know if Billy is innocent. It could be that, yeah, he really didn't do it, or he did do it, and he's protecting somebody higher up. It could also just be that he had no real incentive to admit that he was guilty. Right. Billy's in prison not just for the murders of Fritz and Jean-Claude. He was also convicted of a separate murder in Broward County. For what it's worth in all of our reporting, no one except for Billy has questioned whether he pulled the trigger. Hitler was ultimately convicted of the murder and sentenced to 19 years. He's out of prison now, and we did try to reach out to him with no success. And ultimately, we're left wondering, why would Billy and Hitler murder Fritz and Jean-Claude? There doesn't seem to be a motive, unless they were paid to do it. We don't think this is something that Billy Alexander and and Hitler Florinor cooked up. Where did this come from? That was David Honig, one of Hitler's lawyers. David says that his client didn't know anything about the masterminds or the motives behind the murder. As strange as it sounds for somebody who was accused of participating in two murders, my recollection of Mr. Florinord was that he was innocent. I don't mean I don't mean legally innocent. He was an innocent person. David thought Hitler was caught up in something he didn't quite understand. I remember we collected as many names as we possibly could and tried to chase those threads as far as we possibly could. We really didn't have the resources or the ability, but we were looking for any clues we might be able to find that would lead us beyond Alexander. What he heard over and over again was that this was bigger than a small gang. Hitler and Billy were pawns in a much larger game. The best lead David ever got was from something Hitler mentioned about the day after Fritz's murder. Hitler said in a deposition that Billy drove them to a record store. Billy got out of the car, went into the shop, and came back with an envelope of cash. Billy also corroborated this account in court testimony, saying he met with a man named Bernard Adolf, who gave him an envelope of money and told him to give it to Hitler. Billy had been to that store before. It was owned by someone who he'd known since he was a kid, by a guy who was well known in the community. He was a music producer. He was a concert promoter. And and what I remember about that is just it's this remarkable sense of frustration um, because, and, and I don't know that he did anything wrong, but there was a feeling that he was just out of reach. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. 
with the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpert. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way. Knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, My name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex and then he's very vulnerable so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. There was one name that kept coming up again and again in our reporting. Luis Termitis, Luis Termitis, Luis Termitis, 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 Louis Thermitis. By all accounts, the guy wore many hats. He promoted concerts, he also owned a shipping business, and that record store, Louis Records. It blasted music into the streets, and it was a spot where kids like Billy Alexander hung out. Thermitis was successful, moneyed, powerful, and well-known in the community. In January 1991, just a few weeks after Aristide's historic election victory, Thermitus was organizing a concert in Little Haiti with Fedya Laguerre, an up-and-coming Haitian singer who was known for her pro-democracy anthems. She sang about Aristide's election in one of her songs. 
used to sing gospel songs and she starts singing songs about the movement. She makes so much heat for that movement. Marcellus, Fritz's best friend, the one who came to Miami with Fritz on the same boat. He said everyone at VAO loved Fedia Laguerre's music. So when they heard that she was coming to play a concert in Little Haiti, they should have been excited. Except the concert was being thrown by Louis Thermitus. If he come and sing for, for Louis Thermitus, it's going to undermine our credibility, what we stand for. Tony, Fritz's co-host on the radio. Louis Thermitus, he is connected with the Haitian consulate. And they are, they representing, they represent the government. There were rumors that Thermitus was a supporter of the former regime. Perhaps even a tonton macoute, though Thermitus has denied that. Tony and others in VAEO explained their concerns about Thermitus by citing his connections. One was his supposed connection to the Haitian consulate in Miami, which was staffed by military appointees at the time. The other is that Thermitus was reportedly connected to a specific Haitian military leader. He was in good connection with William Regala. Williams Regala. His very name stoked fear. He had been one of the military leaders of Haiti before Aristide was elected. He was also a major cocaine trafficker. Many in the Haitian community, including Tony, believed that Thermitus was connected to Regala. I asked Tony why. Just to play devil's advocate, a lot of people say to us, oh, it was a time everyone spread rumours about each other. If you didn't like someone, you said they were a Makut or you said they were a trafficker. So we're just trying to understand how, like, how can we concretely know that this guy was actually involved. He was openly friendly with William Segala. If you connected with him, you know, <laughs> that's, that, that, that's it. You connected to William, William Segala. It means you can do bad things because William Segala was a dangerous man leading the country after Duvalier left. A police report from the time indicated that several locals had described Thermitus as, quote, an agent of William Segala and said he should be considered armed and dangerous. Police also suspected Thermitus of being involved in the drug trade and considered him a, quote, middleman, distributor. At this time, it was well known that the drug trade and the Haitian music industry were connected. Drug dealers would often throw concerts to launder money. Again, we must note that Thermitus has denied his connection to the military. According to one police report, he told officers, quote, he is not involved in politics and he's not a member of the Tontomacoutes, nor has he ever been. But Veo saw Thermitus differently. And they didn't want someone who seemed to have direct connections to the old guard to co-op Fedya, one of the most important symbols of their cause. That's why when Thermitus hired Fedya to do a concert for him, we say, uh-uh, no, no, that should not happen. Because Fedya, like air, was part of us. So we don't want the crowd to go and support Louis Thermitus. As usual, Fritz took the lead. Fritz called Fedia. We say, Fedia, you cannot come here in Miami, play for Luis. They told her about Thermitus' reputation, but Fedia said she needed the money. My son is, is sick. I need the money to take care of my son. Fritz offered to throw a concert himself, a free public concert where they'd gather donations for her son. We collect the money for you. We believe you will get more money then if you get for this man. But Fedya felt her hands were tied. And so Fritz told her they'd have to go with plan B, a boycott of her concert. 
Fritz knew that blasting this message on Radio VAO was the best way to get their message to the community. We asked people to stay away from the concert. Jean-Claude Olivier, the other broadcaster murdered just a couple of weeks before Fritz, had also used his radio show to boycott the concert. In the days leading up to the concert, Fritz talked non-stop about the boycott. Fritz's brother, Jean St. Lot, testified to this during the murder trial. He recounted how the broadcasters levied serious claims about Thermitus, including that he'd been corrupting kids of other Haitian refugees, kids like Hitler and Billy, and turning them into gang members. And so the concert came to define which side controlled Little Haiti. They just say he was losing his, his grip if his concern turn out with very few people show up, he's, he's going to lose too much. And we trying to get to get the rug out of his off his feet. And that move, pulling the rug out from under Thermitus, it seemed to work. I think the concern went on and they got very few people show up. Very few, very, very few people show up. The concert was a failure. Upwards of two thousand people were expected only about a third of which showed up. Louis Thermitus was losing face and influence. After Fritz and Jean-Claude ended up dead, the street started saying the two things were linked, that Thermitus had a motive. He must have been angry, people in the community whispered. He must have lost a lot of money. Maybe he had Fritz and Jean-Claude killed to get revenge. These rumours got around. They even showed up on the Miami PD's Creole language tip line. Louis Thermitus heard the rumours too, and he decided the best thing to do was to go and talk to the police voluntarily. So less than a month after Fritz's death, he walked into a police station to say that he had nothing to do with either of the murders. They had nothing to do with politics and was not and never had been a tontomacoot. Yes, he said. His concert was impacted by these broadcasters' boycott but he didn't have them killed for it. He also noted that while he had been in Miami the night that Fritz was killed, he hadn't even been in town when Jean-Claude was shot. He'd been in New York. The interview concluded, and Thermitus walked out. To our knowledge, he was never officially questioned by Miami police about this case again. And there's no hard evidence that we know of linking him to the murders. So he remained part of the community, something Tony experienced viscerally as he went about his own business in Little Haiti after Fritz's murder. I went one day to cut my hair, and the barber person told me, go away, don't, don't get in. Go away, go away, don't, don't get in, because you are in danger. He says, Louis Tamitis is here, he's looking for you. But he didn't recognize my face, you know, my voice. I did call the police. I did call the police that day. And the police came in... They took me to my house, and that was it. They didn't do anything to him. They didn't do anything to him. Tony still doesn't understand why the case stopped with Billy Alexander. Why didn't the authorities look further? We heard about Billy Alexander got arrested. They said he was the hitman, and that was it. That was it. I think we kind of trust the government to justice system to move forward with that case. But in fact, we realize that's not true. That's not true. Soon, it would become clear that the military and its supporters weren't just on the rise in Miami, 
they were getting ready to make major moves in Haiti. It just happened. It just happened. We started seeing tanks out in the streets. There they are, holding up handmade signs, saying, we will make this another Mogadishu. We will make this another Mogadishu. And boy, all hell broke loose at that point. And before long, another friend of Fritz and Tony is gunned down on the streets of Miami. Just hours after a controversial broadcast on his radio show. That's next time on Silenced. We reached out to Fedia Laguerre and hit the Florinor's sister and father for comment, but they didn't respond. Williams Regala died in 2018. Silenced is a Kaleidoscope content original, produced by Margaret Katcher, Jen Kinney, and Padmini Ragunoth. Research assistance from Sibylla Phipps, Jeremy Bigwood, and Kira Sinis. Edited by Lacey Roberts. Executive produced by Kate Osborne. Reported and hosted by Anna Arana and me, Osvaloshin. Fact-checking by Nicole Pasulka. Music by Oliver Rodigan, a.k.a. Cadenza. Mix and sound design by Kyle Murdoch. Thanks to Mangesh Hatikara, Kostas Linus, and Vahini Shuri. Our executive producers at iHeart are Katrina Norvell and Nikki Itor. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, share, and subscribe to our channel. Thank you. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast.